If you didn't open with Hunter, go ahead and grab a Bible, open to Acts chapter 21. We're going to start in Acts chapter 21. If you're visiting with us tonight, thank you for being here. We are studying through the life of Paul on our Sunday nights. We're using the book by Charles Swindoll. He's got a series on Bible characters. We're using that as a resource, doing it differently than him, but using it as a resource enough that I feel like we should mention it every now and then. Um, we've walked through several different times of Paul's life, and we saw him um, before he was a Christian. He hates Christianity. He wants to get rid of Christianity. We saw Jesus appear to him in a very miraculous way. His life is completely turned around. We've been following his journeys the last few weeks. And you may divide your life into sections in your own mind sometimes. Like, those were the years we lived in Kentucky. Or those were the years we lived in Memphis. Or those were the years I worked for this company or that company. Those were the years I was battling illness. Whatever it was, sometimes you can divide your life into sections. I guess I would divide the study of Paul into four. The first one would be those pre-Christian years where he's against Christianity. The second one's the one we've seen where he's, he's finding his way and now he's traveling around serving God, planting churches all over the Roman Empire. Tonight starts the third one. And what I've called it here tonight is the captive years. Um, and the fourth one we'll see is after he gets out. Now these captive years, these really take place in these last eight chapters of the book of Acts. We're going to cover those in two weeks, so we're not really going to get, get to spend a lot of time on every little part of it. We're going to overview it in two different weeks, and then we're going to look at that last part of Paul's life, which the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about. We just get hints from it um, in some of his letters. What happened after he was released? That's what church history tells us, that he was released from Rome and then had these years of doing several things that the letters hint at um, until he died. Um, in fact, the last book he wrote is the one we're reading now in our Sunday nights, 2 Timothy. So we'll get to walk through that just a little bit here in a few weeks. But let's talk about how these captive years begin, because this really is a stage of his life. Now, we saw him in Philippi spend one night in jail, and it amazed us what a great attitude he had about it. He's singing at midnight, they're praying at midnight, but it's just one night. We're starting tonight, we're starting years, at least four years. In fact, we know it was more than four years. The Bible says he spent two years in Caesarea, um, we might see that verse tonight. And then he spent at least two years in Rome. So you're talking over four years of being captive. Now, that had to drive Paul crazy. Because Paul is a person of action. Like, he wants to go, go, go. He wants to, to keep preaching and teaching and talking and go to the next city and go to the next city and talk to the next person. Remember last week when he was talking to the elders at Ephesus, he said, Night and day I was with you going publicly and house to house, talking about the gospel of God. So four years of being captive had to drive him crazy, but he finds ways to serve even there. And that's something that we can sure learn from. What I want us to notice as we get going is he finds that God's prophecies about his life keep coming true, even in these captive years. Now what prophecies are we talking about? Back when he became a Christian, Acts chapter 9, you might remember what Jesus said to Ananias about Paul. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now we've seen him talk to Gentiles. In fact, last week he called himself the apostle to the Gentiles. We've seen him suffer, verse 16. We've seen that over and over. Um, We've seen him talk to the sons of Israel, but look there at the end of verse 15. We haven't seen him bear the name of Christ before kings. That hadn't happened yet. 
I wonder if Paul wondered how it would happen. Well, we see that start happening tonight. It happens in a strange way. It doesn't happen the way Paul might have thought. He might have thought, well, I guess people will just like me so much that maybe I'll eventually get a chance to be invited to talk to kings. That's not what happens. It wasn't like a popularity build that gave him an opportunity to talk to kings. In fact, it's just the opposite. People were so angry at him that he had to talk to kings to defend himself. But it gives him a chance to share the gospel. But you might wonder, if you didn't know Paul's life, like you probably do at least a little bit, how that prophecy fits with ones like Hunter just read a minute ago and one that you find in Acts chapter 21, where there's a prophet named Agabus. And Agabus appears a couple times in the book of Acts. God had given him the gift of prophecy, one of those gifts that they had in the days of the apostles. And he came up to us. Again, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is with him again. And Agabus took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. All right, so the prophecy's there. You're going to be bound, Paul. And in fact, what goes on, the Christians here start saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. You don't need to be captive. You need to be out teaching. And Paul says, Why are you breaking my heart? Why are you crying? Um, I'm okay. I'm okay to, to give my life if I have to for the gospel. And so they let him go. But you might wonder, how does being captive fit with a life of sharing the gospel with kings and Gentiles and Israelites? You see those prophecies all come together and hopefully we'll see them tonight. So i got two main parts tonight. We're going to see how Paul was able to, even in captive years, bear the name of Christ before the Jews, even in captivity. And then we'll see... Uh, the second part of our lesson, how he was able to bear the name of Christ, carry the name of Christ, even before rulers. So before the Jews, before the rulers, and then a few short lessons at the end. So if you haven't been with us in this series, what we're doing, we're just reminding ourselves what the Bible teaches on them. i got a few verses on the screen. I'll summarize some of it if you have the context there in front of you, and then we'll see what we learn from it. All right, so how does it happen? First of all, he has a chance to carry Christ's name before the Jews in Jerusalem. That happens in Acts chapter 22. Here's what happens. He goes to Jerusalem and there's, he's taken a vow. And so he's in the temple and there's this riot that starts, starting verse 27. It says, When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, those are the ones in Ephesus. If you were with us last week, there was a huge riot in Ephesus because Paul was, was being so effective in bringing people to Christ that people who were selling little idols weren't making as much money as they used to make. And so they get together and they're mad about this. And they say, hey, they're making our goddess Artemis look bad. And so some of them are here in Jerusalem now and they see Paul in the temple and they start pulling people together. They lay their hands on him. They cried out, men of Israel, come to our aid. So they're grabbing a hold of Paul. And they're saying, everybody come help us. This is the man who preaches everywhere against our people and against the law in this place. And besides that, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And if you have the context in front of you, that last part's not true. And the next verse says, they had assumed he had brought some of his Gentile friends into the temple, uh, even though he hadn't. So they grab him and they get everybody together. Verse 30 says, all the city was provoked. The people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now, if you've ever seen this type of violence, uh, if you've ever been at a place like that, 
Don't just rush past the description. Um, to watch someone get drug out by a mob, again, I picture Paul at least feeling some sort of fear, right? I would. If I were a friend of Paul, I would have been feeling fear. They drag him out, they shut the doors while they were seeking to kill him. I don't know what that entailed. Were people pulling knives out? Were they getting stones? They were about ready to kill him, but word came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem is in confusion. So at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So they were just, maybe they're just going to do that, just beat him to death. Just keep hitting him until he's not breathing anymore. They're so angry at Paul. But the soldiers stop it all. The commander comes and takes hold of him, orders him to be bound with two chains. My picture here tonight has hands and ropes, but Paul is in chains, at least for now. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. So Paul starts telling him, um, I'm, I'm from Tarsus. Um, let me speak to the people. And so he gives him the chance to speak to this mob. Gave him permission, verse 40. And Paul, standing on the stairs, I assume the stairs of the temple area, motioned to the people with his hand, and there was a great hush, it says. And he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. If you got it open in front of you, as he talks, it says as the people heard he was speaking Hebrew, their language, they got even quieter. What he does, he tells them his story. Guys, I grew up in this city. Uh, I was as zealous as you are today, but Jesus Christ appeared to me. He's turned my life around. I've had my sins washed away through Jesus Christ, and Jesus sent me to the Gentiles. And when they heard the word Gentiles, that's when the riot broke out again. Um, the crowd starts shouting. They get angry. Paul can't speak anymore because they're not going to let him speak anymore. So Paul has this chance to speak for a few minutes, and he shares his story, but that's as far as it goes. So what happens next then is he has a chance to talk to the Jews in the council. The Roman governor's got the Roman centurion here, the Roman commander, he's got no idea what's going on. Uh, we presume he doesn't speak Hebrew. He just knows everybody's yelling, they're angry, they're trying to kill him. And so he says, why don't we take Paul into the Jewish council and I'll just listen to the discussion. And maybe they can explain to me why they're so mad at this guy. Um, and so that's the plan. The next day, they want to know for certain what's going on. He goes to the council. Paul sits, he sits Paul down in front of them. Paul starts off, I guess he feels like he's got a chance to, to tell the truth here. He says, guys, brethren, they're fellow Jews, brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. By the way, stop there a second. Paul had killed a lot of Christians before he became a Christian. But he did that in what? He did that in good conscience. He thought he was doing right. Just one of those places that reminds us, you're not just judged by your conscience. Um, conscience has to be trained. God gave us conscience to help us, to, to, to buzz us when we're violating what we believe to be right. But we've got to train our conscience. And we've got people in this world who have been trained their whole life that it's right to, to blow up people who believe differently from their faith. Um, and do that in fully good conscience. We, we just got to remember, conscience alone is not what we're judged by. Paul had lived in good conscience. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. <laughs> Paul didn't like that, as we would not have liked. 
And he realizes in verse 3, he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You ever call anybody a whitewashed wall before? I've never done that. I'm not sure I understand the idea. Maybe it's the idea that, uh, like Jesus had told the Pharisees, it's rotten wood inside, you just put cover on it. You're just trying to cover it up with white, even though the wood is rotten. Maybe that's what the, the word, the idea means, you whitewashed wall. Um, but he says, you're going to judge me by the law, and you command me to be slapped which is in violation of the law. And that's when Paul realizes this is not going to be a fair trial. So he looks around and he sees Pharisees and he sees Sadducees. And he, said, he brings up an idea that he knows is going to get those two groups mad at each other. And so he says, guys, I'm a Pharisee and I'm here today because of the resurrection of the dead. Now, Pharisees believed in resurrection. Sadducees did not. And so they just start fighting with each other. And that's how the rest of this council meeting goes. Paul realized he wasn't going to be judged fairly. He brings, up, um, he brings up the resurrection of the dead. And so they start fighting. Again, the commander's like, I have no idea what's going on. So he goes and he grabs Paul. They're still mad at each other. He takes him away. And then what happens in this next section? They have to move him to Caesarea. Caesarea was a Roman city. And a lot of Roman government would take place there. It wasn't the capital. Rome was the capital. But Caesarea was one of those places that had a heavily armed guard. Uh, Paul was going to end up living there for several years under guard. But the reason they had to take him away is because there were over 40 Jews who, as, as you read on down, they took an oath. They said, we will not eat or drink until we kill Paul. So you see that in verse 14. They, they go to the chief priests and elders. They say, we've bound ourselves under oath to take nothing until we've killed him. Now, therefore, you and the council, here's what I want you to do. We want you to tell the commander that you want to investigate Paul some more. And as they bring him down to the council, we're going to be waiting and we're going to jump out. We're going to kill him before he even has a chance. So that's the plan. Well, the son of Paul's sister hears about it. We don't know a lot about Paul's family. This tells us he at least had a sister, at least had a nephew. And his nephew hears about it and comes and tells Paul. So when Paul hears about it, he says, I want you to go tell the centurion, the commander. And so he does. And so they make a plan. That night, they have this huge group of the army. Sounds like several hundred men. They march Paul out of Jerusalem under night cover and bring him to Caesarea. In fact, they got, I think they go halfway there the first night. And then the next night, they take him on to Caesarea. Um, but it makes me wonder, what happened to those 40 guys that, may, that took that oath that said, I'm, I will not eat or drink until I kill Paul? Because Paul doesn't die for years and years and years. Did they just die? <laughs> did, did they just uh, die of starvation? Probably not. I'm guessing not. Um, but the Jews had been so angry at Paul. That's how serious they had gotten. People were taking oaths to kill him and not eat or drink until they'd killed him. Um, that's how crazy it had gotten. So that's the first part then. Paul has a chance there in Jerusalem to carry the name of Christ, even in these captive years. He, he doesn't have control, doesn't have freedom anymore. Now the second part then. He has a chance to carry Christ's name before rulers. And there's three of them in these next three chapters. The first one is a governor by the name of Felix. This is maybe the only real trial Paul had before Felix. The Jews come in, they have a, a lawyer come in named Tertullus, and he, he tries to butter up Felix and say, oh, we're so thankful for you. Now let me tell you why you should get rid of this guy. Um, and then Paul has a chance to speak, and Paul, Paul explains, I haven't done anything 
to, to hurt the temple. I haven't brought Gentiles into the temple. There were some Jews from Asia that were mad at me. And if they're mad at me, they should have been here and they're not here. So Paul basically says, they, I haven't done anything wrong. So Felix says, all right, I'm going to wait for the commander to come down and I'm not going to do anything either. Again, the Romans are trying to figure out, what do, what do you do here? Uh, this is something the Romans struggled with quite a bit in the first century. They didn't know why the Jews were having all these problems. If you are with us last week, at one point the emperor in Rome just kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Um, and that Priscilla and Aquila were part of that. They were kicked out of Rome because they didn't know why everybody was fighting. Why, why are they fighting? They didn't know yet that Christianity, um, what people were realizing this was true. And that some Jews rejected it and were causing problems with it. But Felix, they have these same conversations. And I just want to point out a few verses here. After that trial, some days later, verse 24 says, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife who was a Jewess. So she's got a Jewish background. They sent for Paul and they heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul's got a chance to speak to this governor and his wife about Christ. And he does. Notice verse 25. As he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Those are part of Christianity, aren't they? Righteousness, self-control. We're the people who try to live right for God. We're people who try to live with self-control. We're people who believe there's a judgment to come. That's, that's, those are part of it. As Felix heard this, he became afraid. He said, go away for the present time. When I find time, I will summon you. That's sort of sad to us because many people since Felix have had that same attitude toward Christ where they hear about it, but they essentially say, if I find time, if I find time, I'll give my life to the Lord. If I find time, I'll, I'll really turn things around and be better. If I find time, faith will become more of who I am. Don't make that mistake. I think you know as well as I do, we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised the rest of tonight. We know Jesus is coming at some point, even if he doesn't. This world is often very unpredictable in ways that are sadder to us than, uh, than we often talk about. But we've got to make sure we don't just push Christ away and say, when I find time, I'll get back to that. There's not always more time. We need to take our faith seriously while we can, while the offer is open to us, even today. At the same time, too, verse 26 says, he was hoping that somebody would give him some money. He was hoping somebody would bribe him to get Paul out. And so he'd, he'd call for Paul a lot. They'd talk a lot. Paul and Governor Felix sitting around talking about life and about faith. After two years had passed, and again, Paul locked up here in Caesarea for at least two years, he was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. So there's our second person in. Paul now gets to talk to Governor Festus, a guy by the name of Festus, uh, who was the governor. Um, Festus talks to the Jews in Jerusalem. He's the new governor. He wants to get to know them. He wants to have good relationships with them. And they tell him about Paul. He said, we'd really like you to do something about Paul. And so he goes to Paul and he says, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial for me? Well, I don't know if Paul knew this or not, but what, what the Bible says there, if you have chapter 25 open, is that once again, some of the Jews had made an oath, had made a plan, bring him to Jerusalem, and on the way to Jerusalem, we're going to kill him. We're going to ambush whoever's with him, and we're going to kill him. There's not going to really be a trial, but ask for a trial. Well, Paul doesn't want to go to Jerusalem. Maybe he knows that's the way things were going to go. He says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, the Roman government, where I ought to be tried. 
I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And so then verse 12, when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And what that's eventually going to mean is Paul has basically, we would call it in our court system, he's, he's appealed to the next court, the, the next highest up court. So they're going to send Paul to Rome. Uh, we'll see what happens on that trip. It doesn't go the way they planned. We'll see what happens on that trip in our next lesson. But for now, he's appealed to Caesar, so he's not going to Jerusalem. He'll be sent to Rome where he can argue his case before Caesar or whoever Caesar sends for the case. But Festus still doesn't know what to say. They don't really know what's going on. What, why are the Jews so upset at this guy? They can't seem to figure it out. So he brings in a guy named King Agrippa. And so now we see Paul getting the chance to speak about Christ even before a king. Now who is King Agrippa king over? He was king over the Jews uh, he had a Jewish background. He's one of the Herods. If you've heard about the Herods, they weren't always good people, but he was part of that Herod family. And he's got a Jewish background. His wife does too. And so Felix, or excuse me, Festus says, why don't you guys come listen to Paul and maybe you can help me understand what's happening so I can send him to Rome and be more clear about the charges because I don't even know what the charges are against this guy. I just know people want to kill him in Jerusalem. And so Paul comes in, and again, he tells his story. He says, Agrippa, I'm glad you're here because you know the Jewish background. Let me tell you what's happened. He said, I was a Jew. I grew up in it. Jesus appeared to me. I've been teaching the gospel ever since. Uh, explains the whole thing. And when he talks about Jesus being raised from the dead, um, and, and some other things in Christianity perhaps, but Festus jumps, speaks up. He just can't take it anymore. He says in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. <laughs> Your great learning is driving you mad. Now, it tells you there's something about Paul that Festus could tell he was well-educated. And he was. He'd grown up in Jerusalem. He was the Ph.D.-type guy of the apostles. The rest of them were often fishermen. Paul was the guy who had the best education you could find anywhere. And so there's something about him that Festus could tell. You're well-educated. But you believe people rose from the dead? Like, Paul, you're, you've lost your mind. Again, from the outside, if you haven't really thought through a God big enough to make the world, a God big enough to reach into His world, a God big enough to raise someone from the dead. Um, that's who we believe is the one true God. Festus doesn't get all that. Listen to Paul's response. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. He's respectful. I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. He turns it back to King Agrippa. And I speak to him also with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Jesus wasn't hiding in a corner. He was doing miracles out in the middle of everywhere. The Jews knew about Jesus. The Jews know about Christianity. This has not been hidden. And then look what he does. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Paul must have walked through how the prophets pointed to Jesus. And now he's offering Agrippa. He wants Agrippa to be saved, doesn't he? Right here in the middle of this, this courtroom, he says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. He's wanting him to become a Christian. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now, different translations do different things with this verse. And, I, and I'm not sure I'm for sure what Agrippa was saying here. 
We sing the song Almost Persuaded based on this verse because I, I think it's probably King James, New King James. That's what they, how they translate it, where King Agrippa says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe he's saying, Paul, if we talked a little longer, I'd probably be a Christian. Maybe that's what he's saying. In some way, he's saying, Paul, what you're saying makes sense to me, but I'm not there yet. I don't know if King Agrippa ever got to that place. I don't think history gives us any indication that he did. But again, here you have someone who heard the message, who said, I'm almost persuaded. In a short time, I might get there, but I'm not there. Once again, someone who's putting it off has a chance. The gospel, God's brought the gospel into his life. He says, I'm not ready today. Again, it makes me think about our own responses to the gospel. But Paul says, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul turns, he loves, he wants people to become Christians so much. He says, I wish everybody in here, I wish everybody here would, would become a Christian like I am. I wish you'd be like me except for these chains, he says. Um, Paul, it, it just flows out of him. It's just who he is. He believes in it so much. Uh, it comes up even in a, when he's on trial, he can't help but invite and encourage people to become Christians. Next lesson then, we'll see Paul taken to Rome, where once again he's going to have a chance to find a way to keep spreading the Word of God. A few quick lessons as these captive years begin for Paul. Number one, notice that Paul tells his story everywhere he goes. He knew he had seen something. He knew Christ had done something. Now, Paul's story was was more dramatic. Jesus had literally appeared to him in a very miraculous way and said, Paul, I'm real. Stop persecuting me. I, I want you to follow me. So his was different. But it does make me think of people like in Jesus' life, the man who had cast out all the demons, and Jesus said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And he went away and did that, verse 20 says. He went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. As Christians, we have a story to tell. We've seen how real this is, that God is real and Jesus is real, and and we've seen the way He's worked in our lives. We've seen the way He can save us from our sins. I hope we'll be looking for those chances to share our story with people. It's encouraging to people when they hear somebody say things like, "God, God has really turned my life around, or I feel so blessed by God in my life, or, or this is where I used to be, but by the help of God, I feel like I'm growing to this point. When you can hear the stories of transformation and the stories of God working in our life, even just in this room, that encourages people. Our kids need to hear that. Our fellow Christians need to hear that. Our young people at Great Oaks need to hear that. God is real and God is working. Everywhere Paul goes, he has a chance to speak in Jerusalem. He tells his story. Has a chance to speak before King Agrippa. He tells his story. Um, Paul believed God had worked in his life. And even if our story doesn't feel dramatic, God's worked in our life. Let's look for opportunities to tell people about the good things God has done for us. Number two, I love how Paul does not let worldly reputations change who he is. He's in front of the Jewish council He doesn't change. 
Wow, these are important guys. These guys have the power to have you stoned if they want to. At least they've done it before. They weren't supposed to have that power, but they'd done it before. They'd had Stephen stoned back in Acts chapter 7. Um, these are important people. Maybe I should put on my best face. Maybe I should just make them, I want to make them like me. Paul's not thinking in those terms. Paul's a Christian, and he, he's not ashamed to be a Christian. And so here, over and over, in front of these kings and governors and councils, he's very proud of who he is. Not proud, arrogant, proud, but, but proud in a, in a godly sense. that He believes this is right. He's happy about what God's done in his life. Paul's always like that. In Galatians chapter 2, he talks about even in Christianity, the, the apostles. He'd gone to meet the apostles in Jerusalem. And, and James, the brother of Jesus, who was an elder, he says, from those who are of high reputation... Then notice this little parenthesis. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. I love that. Because too often we show partiality. Too often we're, we're like the people that James chapter 2 warns us about, where he says if a rich person or a poor person walks into your assembly, don't you dare show more appreciation to that rich person than you do the poor person. God believes we're all, God teaches, we're all made in His image. We're all saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That offer was for all of us. He died for all of us. We don't look at people with partiality. You're not supposed to. Paul didn't. Paul didn't care if you were well-known, if you were not well-known. He didn't care what your background was. didn't care if you were Jew, Gentile, what your racial background was, what, your, what language you spoke. Paul looked at everybody as made in the image of God and someone he wanted to be saved in Christ. And I hope that's who we are. I hope we don't let people's reputations change us, uh, trying to be trying to put on airs or, or give, a, give a, ourselves in a better light than we really are. Let's just, let's just be real. Let's just be Christians to everybody, no matter how the world feels about them. Paul did that. And then the last thing I've got, uh, I'll put the blanks up here in just a second, but it comes from Isaiah 55. How in the world, how in the world is Paul going to keep uh, being a person who is able to preach Christ before Jews and Gentiles and kings, and at the same time the prophecies were saying that he was going to be bound. How's that, all that going to happen? God had a way, didn't he? God had a way. It wasn't going to be because Paul got so popular that the kings wanted to hear him. It's because Paul was going to be on trial. And he wasn't just going to defend himself, but part of his defense was going to be able to be, I'm a Christian and here's why, and I'd like you to do the same thing. God has bigger thoughts than we have. And a lot of times we look at life and we don't know how things are going to work out. And we don't know how God's promises are all going to be kept. God's made a lot of promises to us. How's He going to make all this fit? I'm reminded of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, God says. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has a way of bringing it together. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you've, you've seen that happen in a small way already, I'm sure. Maybe many small ways, maybe many big ways. God can make things work even when we don't know how they're going to work. And you see that in Paul. And what it reminds me of is this idea. Our life ministry does not change when tragedy comes or doesn't stop when tragedy comes. It does change. We have a, we have a goal in life to serve Christ. Christ has a goal for us to serve Him. And sometimes tragedy comes in the way. Uh, Paul does not want to be held captive for over four years. It's not what he wants his life to be. So his ministry changes, doesn't stop. He's got new opportunities. He doesn't have other opportunities. Life is different now. He's got he's to do things this way and he can't do them this way. But he keeps finding ways to serve God 
even in all the changes that life brings. And I hope we'll be able to do the same thing. We'll go through those different sections in our life. This is when I lived here. This is before this happened. This is when that happened. Every different place is going to give different opportunities and different doors are going to be closed. What I've got to find a way to do is I'm going to keep serving with the doors God opens and trust Him to open and close the right ones. That's what Paul was able to do. That's what I hope we'll be able to do as well. Sometimes we go through those times in life where we look up and realize we're in a phase of life where our faith is not strong like it used to be. If you're there tonight, let us pray for you. Let us as a church family lift you up before God in prayer. Get your life back on the right path. Recommit yourself to the Lord. Don't stay down that path of not being close to God. Let us pray for you tonight. Or maybe you're in one of those stages you never become a Christian. Start this new path. Start the path of letting Christ wash your sins away in baptism. Where you rise to walk a new life, Romans 6 verse 4 says. It's a life of strength. It's a life where God is with you. Come what, come what may in life. Good, bad, God's with you all the way. And your church family is going to be there with you all the way as well. If you're ready to become a Christian tonight, you can do that as well by confessing your faith in Him and being baptized. If we can help you in any way, you're invited to come to the front now while we stand and while we sing. Hide me on my Savior.